If you don't have a Bible here today, raise your hand. I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. We are currently, as you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God. And we are in Matthew chapter 17. That's the first book of the New Testament, the 40th book of the Bible. Uh, We are in chapter 17. And we pick it up today, actually, where we left off then in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And if not, go ahead and uh, open up those Bibles again to Matthew chapter 17. Let's do this. Go back a bit to chapter 16, just for a bit of context. Go to 1624. That's the benefit of being in your Bibles. Uh, In context for that, Jesus had just, uh, Peter had just discovered by divine revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. For which then Jesus, of course, says, Blessed are you, Simon Baruchona, for flesh and blood have not revealed these things but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus immediately makes sure that you recognize you can't have the Messiah without the mission. There's no Messiah without the cross. And Jesus wanted to make sure everybody understood that. For which then Peter promptly jumps into it and says, That'll never happen. And they understand the inference is quite simple, and that is, Jesus, I know things look bad as far as your perspective, but don't worry, you got me. No, I'll protect you, is the idea. And Jesus, of course, then turns and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And that's really important to recognize that even though Peter, in his very best intentions, really wanting just to protect someone he loves, we can all agree that's a decent intention, a noble intent. And yet it was still really, in the essence, something that the enemy would want to do. And that's because the whole idea of the enemy is to keep you from the cross. First, the cross of Jesus, then as a Christian, your own. And Peter just inserted himself was the idea. And Jesus then says in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that will be kind of emphasized in in the rest of our text. I mean, the whole idea of actually seeking to hold on to what you have or letting it go for what Christ has instead. And then he tells us, for what what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his own soul? The whole world yet loses his own soul. What can man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man will come with his glory, uh, the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming, erkomai, coming, simply, in his kingdom. And again, then we move to the next chapter, and again, the first thing we see is Jesus revealed. Now, it's important to recognize Jesus had been revealed spiritually to Peter. Jesus takes three guys, Peter, James, and, and John, up the mountain, and, and it's often you know, suggested maybe Jesus saw the greatest potential in these guys, What maybe what Jesus actually saw was that these guys were um, clearly going to be the leaders, and with that in mind, why not take those three and give them a little bit of a special treatment? But having been a teacher of secondary school, I can tell you there are certain guys specifically that the reason you take them everywhere you go is because you can't afford for them to be out of your sight. Uh, They're the first ones to set something on fire. They're the first ones to do something that you have to clean up. And and I kind of get that with Peter, James, and John because that's kind of where they're at. 
I mean, these are the guys who Jesus had just said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, to James and John will actually ask to call fire down because a Samaritan village doesn't let them through. Now, you kind of get the idea that these guys were kind of the remedial course. Nonetheless, he takes them up, and Jesus now is transfigured. Metamorphous is the word, metamorpho in the Greek. He's metamorphosized like a caterpillar that becomes a uh, butterfly or like a tadpole becomes a frog. And in that, Jesus now has been revealed visually, physically. I mean, before that, Jesus had been revealed spiritually to Peter. Now Jesus is revealed physically. And Peter, in like suit, adds himself into the mix one more time and says, it's good for us to be here. Peter had offered to protect Jesus, which is always funny. If you have to protect your God, you clearly have the wrong one. Uh, And then Peter now is offered to actually just make God comfortable by building tents so that the kingdom could be built and established, for which then, of course, Peter, James, and John would be clearly elevated to a place above the rest of the disciples. From that, then Jesus, uh, the Father, interrupts again. Tells Peter in the simplest sense, sit down and be quiet, and then says, this is, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter, listen to this guy. And then, as Jesus was there meeting with Elijah and Moses, they're gone, and Jesus is the only one there. And he says, no, don't tell anyone. Have you ever had a crazy, mad, wonderful, proper experience with God? And all you want to do is tell everyone this amazing time where God did something as if first and foremost, God did it to you so that you can just bequeath that glorious incident to others. Yeah, Jesus, how hard would that be to be silent? Now, Jesus knows if he lets those three guys talk about it, they're going to clearly vaunt this over the rest of the other nine. He says, don't tell anyone yet. And that's when their brain starts spinning. And so they ask, and this is now in our verse 10, that's our context. His disciples asked them, saying, why, and these are the three disciples, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In verse 9, we read that they're heading down the mountain now. Verse 11 says, Jesus answered and he said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. That's the first half of this. And we go from this then to the bottom of the hill. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic. He suffers severely and often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out and was cured from that very hour, we read. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and I would probably go to him privately at a moment like this, and since clearly we weren't able to do anything about it. And they said, Why could we not cast them out? Now, notice what Jesus says. It's important to recognize. He says, because of your unbelief. He does not say here, because you haven't fasted and prayed, but because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible 
for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while Jesus or while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, or they'll kill him. On the third day, he will rise up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And of course, the men actually were discussing what that meant, rising from the dead. When they had come to Capernaum, those who had received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does not, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Peter's like, yes. And when they had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Oh, Peter says to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, well, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a hook. Take the first fish, the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened his mouth, its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you for this beautiful time that we have now to be in your word, to let you instruct us and teach us. And I just pray, God, that you would meet us exactly where we're at, speak exactly what we need to hear, not a moment or a word more, nor less. I trust you, Lord. I hand myself over to you and know, Lord, that you desire to bless your saints. So just take my own lips and attach them to your heart and speak. And please, please, please minister to every need in here. May we walk out of here encouraged, strengthened, equipped, further readied, Lord, for everything you have for us. Bring salvation to this house, hope to this house, peace to this house. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Never just assume because I say it, it must be the truth. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. I would say don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. Now, put yourself in the shoes of these guys for a moment. Three guys are up on a hill, on a mountain, exceedingly high. Interesting, there's only one exceedingly high mountain in all of Israel. That's Machermon. They've now traveled their way up there. And and as if they've gone up there, something pretty radical is taking place. Because at a moment like this, they see Elijah. Now, we also recognize that Moses is there as well. But see, understand, if you're connecting the dots, this is pretty radical. Because the idea here is quite simple. They know that the scribes have been teaching that the, the son of, uh, that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to set up his kingdom. And when he does, he will vanquish the greatest enemies of Israel. And so they're looking for Elijah. And they expect, when they see Elijah, that the kingdom then will be set up and established. And if you had just that amount of information and you were up on that hill, how hard would it be to connect those dots? I look and I see Elijah. Now, we don't read how they recognized he was Elijah, whether he had a big sign or he had this special Elijah belt or, you know, he was, whatever the case. All we know is somewhere in all of that, they see Elijah and they're like, that's Elijah. But those of us, I mean, we all have had at least one dream where somewhere you've seen someone and gone, well, that's clearly so-and-so, even though they don't even look like it. So God knows how to confirm in your heart who someone is. Just the same, they recognize that's, that's Elijah and Moses. And we know that because when Peter speaks, he says, let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He clearly knows who they are. And so we see Elijah up there, and we instantly think 
boom, there it is. Clearly that's Elijah. Clearly it's kingdom time. And check it out. The three of us are up here able to see this whole thing. What a cool privilege it is for us. God clearly is doing himself a favor. He's including us in on this. But please understand, God is never blessed when we finish his sentences. And often what happens is God tells us a little bit of something and we fill in the rest ourselves. And there's the problem. God will say, take a step east and you instantly think, well, then it's Asia. God will say, well, why don't you do this one step? Go and speak to that gal. And the guy instantly thinks, well, clearly she must be my wife to be. I mean, it's amazing how we fill in these sentences that God hasn't even given us to fill in. And there are a couple really important things to recognize in text. Throughout Scripture, we find that often God really works on us on a one-step basis. If you were to ask God, God, what are all of your plans for me in the year 2016? How many of those do you think God would give you? And what if he did give you all of his plans for 2016? That would obviously include some hard times, some challenges, some refining moments. Would you fret those and freak out before they came? Would you just now, with the clarity of what you expect from God then, from this point to 2.16, not speak to him until 2.17 to get the new plans for the new year? Please understand, nothing is more important to God than his relationship with you. And when you recognize that, you realize every decision God makes is governed by a desire to draw you closer to him and to use you to draw others closer to him. Every decision he makes is based on that. Whether that's punitive and punishing, whether that's some form of challenge, whether that's just a great moment of intimacy or a moment of some really cool experience, everything that we, ex- that we in one way or another encounter, the hand of God is to draw us closer to him. Now, there are moments, for instance, if you're familiar with John 4, the woman at the well. She had gone to the well that day to do a very ordinary daily routine, a monotonous thing. She had gone to the well to get water. She had gone about noon, uh, which tells us a little bit of something. The well, by the way, was sort of the ladies' room of 2,000 years ago. You know where everyone, all the girls get together and talk? Well, that was kind of the idea here. I mean, now we have chat rooms and we have all those things. Well, we, you, because I'm not a girl, so I shouldn't put a, a me in that. But, you know, you have these places where you can meet and converse. Well, in those days, that was the well. But it was more than that because the well was also the place where the single ladies went. You didn't normally send the married women to go and get water. So the single ladies would sit and talk about things, but they also kind of revealed that they were single sitting around the well. We know from, and that kind of pulls us all the way back to Abraham getting a son, uh, getting a bride for his son. She's found at a well. You find the same thing in essence with Moses, if you think about it. And Jacob, there are places where these, these gals, this is kind of an important deal. And when this woman goes to get water, she has no idea she's going to encounter Jesus. She's just on a, an errand like Saul was to find his donkeys. But when she goes there, she meets Jesus, not aware of who he is. And he proceeds to peel away layer by layer by layer to where he gets to her most core fundamental appetite, her greatest hunger, to be loved. And as Jesus gets to that raw spot in her being, now I don't know what your raw spot is. I can tell you a couple of mine. 
probably wouldn't, but you get the idea. And, and, and somewhere in it, Jesus gets to that raw spot and reveals himself there. And then the woman runs, leaving her water bucket behind, which tells us that though she had gone on an errand to go and get water, she never even got the water she was looking for. She got the water she needed instead, the living water that Christ offered. And there are times where maybe the Lord will send you on what seems to be an errand, and you are convinced, well, bada boom, bada bing, I'm going to go get water, come back. Then what's the next thing? Completely unaware of the fact that halfway through, God's going to completely change the course of your destiny. And there are those moments. There are those other moments, for instance, in that same chapter, Jesus sent his disciples and he sent them, by the way, to go get food. And when they come back, they're saying, Jesus, eat, which tells us that they'd gone to get food, assuming that at least for some degree they were going to get it for Jesus. But the problem was, as Jesus said, I have food that you don't know of. My food is to do the will of the Father. And with that, then you realize all the food that they've gotten was for them to eat ultimately in Jesus. Though Jesus had sent them on the errand, they had filled in the gap to say, well, this is clearly for him. And there are times where the Lord will send you on something and you think that the purpose is to really do something that's just going to radically do something for Jesus. And in the end, it's really radically just for you. Now, the only way we're going to realize that is in hindsight. Paul, in the book of Acts, is heading through the central coast of Turkey. Oh, he's heading through the center of Turkey. He seeks to go due north to Istanbul, due west to well, what we might call today Asia, or actually what we call like Ephesus or uh, Kushadasi today. And he can't get to it either. The Holy Spirit restricts him. So what does he wind up doing? He can't go due north. He can't go due west. He winds up going northwest to the coast and winds up then in Troas, where he gets a vision of a Macedonian man. And because of that vision, God sends one of the greatest historical evangelists to Europe so that we can sit in this room today. Because to be honest, it was through that that Jesus was brought into Europe, which we could be thankful for. And churches were planted. Now, I don't know what lines we filled in, in your heart or in mine. But I can tell you, when God spoke to Abraham, he spent more time on what he's going to be and less on what he's going to do. Did you notice that? He said, now go to a land I'll show you. So I'm not going to show you where you're going yet. To do what? He didn't say. He said, but he did say this. Then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And I'm going to make you a blessing. That's what you're going to be. You're going to be a father. And he leaves at 75. You're going to be a father. Doesn't make any sense. But the only thing he knew was to leave. That was his first step. Sometimes understand all that God wants to tell you is one thing, because to be honest, it isn't about clarity, it's about obedience. And we can get all funky with the issue of uh, clarity, and actually what we're doing is we're trying to disguise the fact we really don't, we're not interested in obeying. What we just want to do is try to make it seem like work is confusing when God made it simple, because if we can confuse it enough, well then we actually don't have to do what God made clear. But if God were to reveal our hearts, what he would reveal is he would reveal a disobedient heart. What's interesting is in our text, Peter is constantly inserting himself. We've noticed that. Wanting to protect Jesus. And then 
wanting to set up tents. By the time we're done with this, notice Peter sent fishing in a way that he doesn't normally fish. He's a net fisherman. We know that from, from the rest of the Gospels. Uh, and, and yet in this, this is the only time we actually see Peter casting a line. That would be kind of fun and funky. And yet in this, now we're heading down the mountain and we're trying to figure this thing out. Because we've actually now decided we were going to fill in the gaps for God. And the way that we did that is by actually looking and going, well, Elijah's here. Clearly, this must be it. Now, I I get this because this happens, I mean, we as Christians, but as a group can do this too. I mean, let's face it. A hundred years ago was the first world war. Now, when we read prophecies in regards to the end of the world, we see a great battle. And we see a great battle that it seems like the whole world seems to get involved in. Israel is surrounded by enemies on all of its sides. The Antichrist sets himself up for the entire world to worship at the Temple Mount, in the Temple, declares himself to be the only thing to be worshipped, and all mayhem breaks loose. And a hundred years ago, if we would lived that long, and I look around here, none of you remotely lived that long, I realize in that that we might have gone, this looks like the end of the world. This really does look like what, we're, what the Bible is saying, except uh, this whole thing about the fact there was no Israel. See, a hundred years ago, Israel didn't come to be. It wasn't until the 40s that Israel actually came to be a nation again. But it would make sense to us that we would probably try to fill in that gap because, after all, Israel hadn't been a nation since younger than 100 A.D. So clearly, uh, really, in essence, somewhere between 100 and 120, if we're going to be honest. But from 70 A.D., Israel really was nothing that would have been, to be honest, of much consideration as a nation after the temple was destroyed. And I mean, that's over 1,000 years. That's over 1,500 years. We get an idea. That's a crazy thing. So what we do is we fill in the gaps and we say things like, well, the church must be Israel. But when God said Israel, strangely enough, what he meant was Israel. It just didn't make any sense. But in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what God made clear was that Israel was going to be born again as a nation in the most horrible of times. And that was exactly what we saw in the 40s through the Holocaust. But God already made that really clear. And here's the point. God did not say in the 1920s, in the 1910s, that there would be Armageddon. He actually said no one could know the day or the hour. I get that. But we could try to fill in those gaps. And when we try to fill in those gaps, often what we do is that when we find that God is actually much more smart than we are, we somehow have a problem with God. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Now, that one, wouldn't make, no, that one doesn't apply perhaps as much to us because we weren't alive during those days. But I, I bet there's at least one time in your life where the Lord has said something. You've filled in the gaps. It hasn't come the way you thought it was. And then somehow in all of that, you've kind of wondered what's wrong with God. Well, that's kind of where this is with Peter. As that he's filling in these gaps. They are filling these gaps. And they kind of look and they see Elijah. They couldn't possibly imagine this was just a board meeting. They kind of think, well, this must be the kingdom. And I get that. Isaiah 40, 750 years before Jesus came in the flesh, tells us that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness. I get that. Malachi, the last book written of the Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus came, says in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. So we're looking for a messenger. But by the next chapter, Malachi 4.5, he says exactly who it is. He says, Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And it'll actually say what will happen. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. Interesting that when God shows a nation that's under him restored, the one thing to gauge is fathers. Isn't that weird? When God talks about the end of the world, he says the one thing you actually want to watch is Israel. When he says you want to see what it looks like to see revival in the body of Christ, watch the dads. Where are they at with their children and where are the children at with their dads? And that's something we should be looking for. But so we recognize that it is Elijah. The problem is, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it says in Luke 117, when the angel actually spoke to John the Baptist's mother, he said, or father, he says, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So I get that. Now, there's a particular expression, and I'll teach it to you. It's only four words. That's a Hebrew expression. And it says this, Ketzapo me'od sham. Try that first word, ketzat. Try that word, ketzat. Still used today. It means a little. Ketzat. Would you like something? And you go, ketzat. Do you speak Hebrew? Ketzat. A little. No, because I speak the word ketzat. Then there's the word po, like Kung Fu Panda. So try that one, po. So ketzat po. Try that, ketzat po. Ketzat po means a little here. Po means here. Me'od. Try that, me'od. Me'od means more. Often they use that of like very much or great. That word means much. And the word sham. Try sham. So try me'od sham. Me'od sham means a lot there. A little here, a lot there. Now, it's a common expression Used, by the way, of rabbis. And the purpose of that is, is taking a look at the way that they interpret Scripture. A little something here. A lot later. And it's simple. The idea is, is that when God fully fulfills something, it'll be the lot, the total later. But God will leave little hints that are very similar on the way. Classic example, we might say, is the Antichrist who is coming had a ketzap. Poe prior in the 40s. We know him as Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was clearly an Antichrist. He wasn't the Antichrist because the end of the world hasn't come. The book of Revelation hasn't transpired the way the book of Revelation makes clear. But he was clearly a good prototype, if you will. Ketzap Poe. But when we read about the Antichrist, he will be the Ma'od Sham, the complete fulfillment. Throughout time, we have looked, for instance, when people talk about the destruction of Israel. They talk about a lot of the destruction that's foretold, for instance, even in books like, for instance, Daniel. And they'll say the book of Revelation. And then they'll say, well, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Or you'll read about the, and what you'll see in that is, well, that couldn't possibly be the case. First of all, Revelation was written after the destruction of the temple. So that kind of makes it weird to prophesy something behind you. But we kind of look and they go, well, it, well, didn't all of that happen at the destruction of the temple? I say, it's a pole. But I guarantee you, when a third of the world is destroyed, humanity, I just got to speak to an individual this week who said that he thought Armageddon already took place. And I'm like, wow, how did I miss that? You know? And he said, oh, that took place about 100 years ago. And of course, he was bringing it to the uh, First World War. 
And I said, so wait a minute, a third of mankind was killed? He says, well, a third of Europe, that's all that really matters, which is weird to hear as an American who is not necessarily European. Wait a minute, so I don't matter? So it was okay, well, what about China or India, places where there's an awful lot of people? You'd kind of notice if a third of them were gone. He's like, well, that was the Black Plague. I'm like, I really didn't touch them like that. And the reason I say that is, Ketzat Po, Mo'od Sham, is what Jesus is actually doing here with Elijah. It's a hint of it, but it's not the entirety of it. So we're trying to figure it out. And here's the cool part, is that the whole ultimate aspect of this is what's going to happen when we head down the hill. When we head down the hill, there's a multitude, nine of the disciples who are very frustrated, and a group of scribes that are arguing with them, and a very desperate father. Hey, we've just had this most amazing experience. We have watched Jesus glow, emanate light. We have seen two people, I guarantee you, we never thought we'd encountered this side of heaven, Elijah and Moses, and we'll take a look at them and go, whoa, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, if not the coolest. And then he up on that hill, we saw Jesus exactly for three years. My prayer is that that's what you should be for us. Exactly. Yeah, the idea of, ex- of experiencing Jesus and Jesus so real. It is not what we want to make. Not what we want to make. It's just what we want to make our father. But rather, And somewhere in all that, the problem is that if, if it were like that, we wouldn't want to launch. Now, we get that because often, to be honest, we can be here almost often longer in fellowship after than we actually are in service. And for some of you might be that might actually seem pretty right. And yet, the problem is that when we head off these doors, we're heading down the And we know what it makes us then. The noise, the confusion, people who have, that are perverse. People that are faithless. And a tremendous sea of things. We recognize But that's not enough to keep us up at home. What we have to do at that point is we have to take church with us. Because we can't shut ourselves in this building where we know it. So as the disciples start to figure out from all of this that John the Baptist is what Jesus was speaking about, we have to get cool. We had to have a moment of this voice. As we head down the mountain, it says that in verse 14 that there was a multitude there that came to him, and that this man came kneeling down, so when he cried out. Now, in Luke and in Mark, all the chapters 9, uh, we see that this story is also told, and we read this as the next day, we read that a great multitude that Jesus on there, and we also read in Mark 9 that the scribes were arguing with Jesus' disciples. And Jesus doesn't ask the disciples, he asks the scribes, what were you guys talking about? We have no record of described answering, so clearly it seems like that was something close. And I like the Jesus, like, so what are you guys talking about? And nobody wants to say it. Nobody wants to stop. But this man comes down and he says, and he falls down in Jesus' feet. He says in verse 15, Lord. That's what it's about. A clear declaration of his authority. He says, Lord, be a mercy on my son. He's another one. Now, the word literally in, in Greek is a word that means moon and strong. 
And the man says, but I have run and run your disciples. But this, this, your disciples couldn't do anything. They couldn't make this happen. I mean, I was so hopeful this would do it. I mean, this would be the crazy part. These disciples have been sent out prior, back in chapter 10. And Jesus gave them the power over evil spirits. And so they were, they all had this experience and put it here, and then come back and they were all buzzing about it. And Jesus said, stop freaking out over that. You should be more buzzing about the fact you're getting away from heaven than about this. Demons are subject to you. And at this moment, imagine what it would be like to take you to the person like looking for Jesus to get you to find him anywhere. He's like, well, you got you guys. Well, your part is disciples, right? Did you do something for my kid? Thank you. 
disciples, they're the ones that seem to be lacking of faith. But what you can miss is all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is reviewing the story of Israel as they're now, as he's about to die, and Israel's about to have the promise to him. And as he does, he kind of reviews their story and he says, Look, God's blessed you, he's redeemed you, he's delivered you, he's given you all these things he's provided for you. But in 32 15, it says, But yet, Shalom, and you may be familiar with that word, Yeshua, by the way, means my upright one. And then understand when God speaks of this, it's sort of like this is who you should be. The same way they would call Jacob Israel, but he also called him Jacob. When he's sort of out of the way, he calls him Jacob because it's kind of what his name means. And when he's kind of being decent, he calls him Israel. The same way he calls him Simon Peter, Simon is kind of unstable, Peter kind of a rock. And understand God does it with us as we continue to shed who we were to embrace who God wants to make us. Well, understand what he calls the issue of this is who you should be. He says you grew fat. You can't get it. You grew fat and you're thick, you're obese. Then he pursues the God who made his point to see the rock of his salvation. Provoked to jealousy. What's glory to God is all the nations. They provoked to make anger. They sacrificed the demons, not to God. To God they did not know. You got new arrivals that your fathers didn't fear. But of the rock of the God you know, you're at a life. You forgot the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what they're going to be. Because they were a perverse generation, children. Do you know the word faith is only really mentioned twice in the Old Testament? Here. And in the back of it says the just shall live by Because they lived it, they had to walk it. God calls the doctrines in the New Testament from their example. Jesus says to those guys, you're faithless. And that doesn't mean that you just have no faith in anything. Faith is not a thing that's going to just distrust. But let me make this clear. You believe we're not all stuff. First of all, it tells us, as the Porter recognized, in Romans 12, 3, that God has given every person to faith. It doesn't matter who you are, He's given the love of trust. It tells us faith in 10, 17, Romans 17, that faith comes by hearing and not the word of God. God is depositing trust in your account and receiving good God's word. The question is, are you going to spend it? And in this situation, as Jesus would have asked in the boat when they thought they were going to die, where is your faith? What are you standing on? Your strength, your own personal promise. Let it come. The situation, perhaps in the beginning, they kind of just, you know, it's always worse, so why I go anywhere else with it? And see, when you would ask, well, what's the one thing missing? That's the point. What's missing is the, the valor or Passion or the oomph, the mind, and we got none of that's missing at this moment. The one thing missing was Jesus. That's the one problem. So Jesus says, Bring him here again. That's what we're missing. Bring him here again. And as the boy was brought to him, he convulses, he freaks out, he starts to spit, 
it's the priest, and it's the pope, and it's the pastor, and it's a television personality, and it's a board, and it's a this, and it's a prayer warrior, and it's a, and it's so real that I work on it's a dead space. That's one of my favorites. Let's go conjure up someone that died for the other years, like he's in the whole body, and we don't care, you know, and he's more like idiots. And then, you know, I have to go ask him for, to deliver my prayers. It's maybe. Where did you get your Jesus ever say, well, now that I'm going to die to be with you, but now that I'm with you, you're going to have to talk to my mom and you're going to want to talk to me. What relationship is that? And we're constantly putting middlemen in between. Now, in this case, maybe the guy just didn't see Jesus, so we just tried to do the best thing, but the next best thing just doesn't work. And they didn't, and they clearly didn't work. They tried. And from lack of faith, there was no there was no healing in that. But what's interesting is that I look at the past and I realize it was the perfect paradigm for right? this level of faith in this sense. There's just some rest. But when you're not trusting God, you can't rest. How can you? Because you know what you think is it's your responsibility. What's interesting is where it goes from there. It goes to the most horrible sacrifices, and I can't possibly, if I'm not alone in faith, I can't possibly trust that God can make something good out of this. How could you make something good out of this horrible situation? I mean, death, murder, how do you make good out of that? Jesus like, this is the redemption of all mankind. And if you think you've dodged the bullet out of this, look at the last thing. What was the last thing? Are you going to provide? Now, notice the thing is you can hold Peter in something. He cast a line. But I guarantee you, Peter would never have cast a line unless Jesus told him. Because Peter was a lion caster. He was a net thrower. And here's the point. Is that these are the arguments and the battles we face with our God because of our faith and lack of God. And this is the way it looks. God, you've got to give me something I can understand. If I don't understand it, I'm going to try to figure it out. Fill in the gaps of life. Think I understand it. But if you fill in the gaps, God is not giving you to fill in. You will never fill in on What we find instead of that is that the faith actually says, I don't have to understand it. I'll trust you. There's the beauty of God. I, I don't understand, but I trust you. And what I do know is what I sacrifice when I try to figure it out. And this is what I do know. God is good. And that He loves me. He only wants to express me. Then I do know. And if I know that much, how can I sacrifice that to try to figure out God something? Because something horrible happened and I don't understand how God can be good. It's like, you know, I don't understand. I do know this. Trust me. Because I trust you. I know you're really good at this because all things work together. Because I love you. And I know I'm calling you because I trust you. So there's this aspect about hard information that I have to resign to not even apply my own understanding of gravity with knowledge instead. So there's that. But then I go from that to this aspect of dealing with God's provision. And I'm like, but God, what do I need to do here? How do I need to change? And I'm not hearing anything. And I'm not hearing anything, and I'm like, oh, what do I need to do? It's getting crazy, and then I realize Saul did that in the Old Testament when the king saw, because it seemed like the, the, 
uh, and the Philistines were encroaching, and his death kind of bailed on him. And so he took a step of praise that wasn't his to do it. He put it in his own hands, and he did that because somewhere he wasn't trusting that God was going to But he hadn't heard. He hadn't heard from Saul. He hadn't heard from God. And sometimes you're asking God, what do I do? You're not hearing anything because what God wants you to do is nothing. And if he said anything, you just jump. Instead, he goes, he knows that he, for him to be quiet in the moment is the only way to make a He's like, well, but when that moment comes, he's like, now, I want you to obey this. Cast the line. But I don't want to cast the line. Cast the line for you. That's all you need to do. You'll take care of it for both of them. Yeah. And here's the point of this to go to prayer. Beloved, here today, God really wants to reach into our lives. And he wants to challenge us to trust. Faith makes you listen. Faith is the space you can feel. Faith reveals Jesus to who he really is. Faith is as needed me in the midst of something like that. Faith, by the way, sees people change. Faith is the same thing. Faith brings you to Jesus. Faith is the same thing. Thank you. 
Right. 